finished at about 12.30. <clears throat> the rest of the day, I spent working on the sermon, preparing it, getting it ready, meditated on it during the week, prayed about it during the week, prepared the uh, life group questions that are on the back, had to think through the whole thing that way. Saturday, I preached it twice to myself, went in my little bathroom, closed all the doors so no one could hear me, preached it twice to myself. This morning I got here early, went to a youth room, preached it again to myself, realized I was about five minutes over, had to cut something out, preached it again in the first service. This is the fifth or sixth time. I learn so much when I do this. You will have what you can catch today as the Spirit of God gives something of good from me to you. But I learned a whole lot this week. And I encourage any of you to teach because you benefit so much more than those who learn. This is the fifth and final uh, series, our, our sermon in our series, our five-part ser- five series on Romans, on being right with God. Let me just briefly go over it so you get some context. The, ver- the uh, first one that Scott preached was on the fact that God is righteous and we are what? Not. <laughs> and it's fine for you to interact. I'm more of a teacher than I am a preacher. <clears throat> we only know we are not righteous when we see that God is. It reveals our unrighteousness, right? Light shows darkness. You look in the mirror, it becomes clear. The second week that Scott preached on was that God gives us his righteousness as a gift through the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have it. He gives it to us. David Brannock preached the third week, which was by what means does he give us his righteousness? By means of faith. Remember Abraham was the example? Abraham is important because he predates the law of Moses. He, pre- he predates the, the sign of circumcision. He predates all of that. And he was still credited as righteousness by faith. So Paul goes back to that in his argument to say it's always been by faith, even in the Old Testament. You were made righteous in God's eyes by faith then and you are now. And then last week, Scott preached and said one of the benefits of that is that we have peace with God. And it was not primarily a subjective peace where we feel peace. That's a byproduct. But it is primarily an objective reality. We are at peace with God. We were before enemies, the Bible says. It says that in multiple places. I know that sounds harsh, but it's exactly what the Bible says. And if you think about it, every time I choose to sin, I raise my fist to the Creator and I say, not thy will be done, but mine. I would call that an enemy. (laughs) But God gives us His righteousness reconciles us, and we are now at peace with God because of Jesus Christ. That was last week. This week is a a crazy title. It looks like one of those Puritan writers from the 1800s who uh, tries to put most of their message into the the title itself. Explaining God's means of transferring our sins to Christ and his righteousness to us. (laughs) I hope it won't be as dry as that title sounds. But we're going to talk about that. All right. Let's uh, jump in. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 10. This morning, earlier, I got through verse uh, (laughs) 6. That's okay, though. It covered all the outline on the back there of your study notes, and uh, I was able to close it the way I wanted to. But let's just read verses 1 through through 10, and we'll see what we get through. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Let's go back to verse 1 and we'll just walk through this. See if we can understand what Paul's getting at. Where does this idea come from? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Just look back two verses and you'll see why Paul thinks this might come up. Verse 20 of chapter 5, the second half says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul argues God's grace is sufficient to cover every and all sin. You cannot exhaust the grace of God. And Paul realizes that this gospel that he's been proclaiming could be taken the wrong way. He is saying it's through Christ alone, by faith alone, all by grace alone. Well, if that's the case, why not keep sinning? It'll just show God to be more gracious. He can cover it all. And lest you think that's a silly idea, no one would ever come up with that, go back to Romans 3, verse 8. Just look there momentarily, a couple chapters back. Paul says, Why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? He had gotten this very charge as people listened to his gospel. Let me submit this to you today. If that idea seems crazy to you, maybe you have never understood the grace of the gospel. There is nothing you or I can do to please God, to warrant salvation, to impress Him in any way. There is no good in me that would cause God to look favorably upon me. There isn't. And there is none in you either, according to Scripture. And yet, God does look favorably upon us. It's called grace. It's a gift. It can only be received as such. And that's the gospel we've been talking about in this series. Given to us by Jesus Christ through his work alone as, as a gift. So Paul says, I know where you can go with this. You can think, if it's all God and has nothing to do with me, I'll just keep on sinning. There are people who think it's okay. I can believe and say all these things about Jesus and I'll just live any way I want to. In fact, there are a lot of people in our churches today. I'm not saying it's any one of you. Only God knows your heart. But there are a lot of people in churches today who have just checked a religious box. They know a lot of facts about God. They could even tell you some theology about Jesus. Doesn't mean their heart's been changed. Doesn't mean they're born again. Doesn't mean the Spirit of God has given them new life. It does not mean their sins are forgiven. It just means they know some things. We don't check boxes when we come here. We don't walk an aisle. We don't say a prayer. <clears throat> we don't kneel with an elder. We don't even get baptized as the means by which God forgives us. No, that happens in the heart as Christ's blood is applied. So don't check a religious box. And don't think, I can live however I want. I have a cousin who does this. He will claim to know Jesus Christ. He will claim to say all the right things. And he will live like the devil. And he says, what's the problem? I checked the box. Everything's good with me and the man upstairs. Something in your mind should smack of there's something wrong with that when you hear that. 
Paul puts it this way in verse 2. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This word, by no means, is a phrase in Greek that has no translation in English. We don't have this word. It's the strongest possible way of saying no in the Greek language at the time. That's why in your translations, you'll see it translated, God forbid, by no means, perish the thought, absolutely not. Whatever term you want to use for no without swearing, go ahead and put it in. That's Paul's reaction. The idea is abhorrent to him that someone could claim the name of Jesus and it make no difference in their life. That's a lot of things, but it's not salvation. There must be a change. Now, what does Paul mean when he says we've died to sin? We don't talk like that. We die from things, right? People die from old age. People die from disease. People die from an accident. We don't die to We're going to have to walk through the passage to understand what he means by this. He'll explain it. But this is the key concept in the passage. We died to sin. One thing we know it can't mean is that we don't sin again. Gene, you've lived a long time. You've been an elder. A lot of people look up to you. Highly respected. Do you still struggle with sin? Every now and then? A little bit of sin? Yeah, me too. No one gets to the end of their life and say, well, I took care of that. No more sin again. Right? That's not our experience. That's not life. It can't mean that we never sin again. So let's find out what it does mean. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? All right. Paul uses the term baptism here for a couple verses. So let's camp out on this idea and understand what he's talking about. In the New Testament... Becoming a Christian looked like this. Repenting of your sins, putting your faith in Jesus Christ, and being baptized publicly. That's what it looked like to become a Christian. That was the process. There was no category of people who trusted in Jesus and followed Him, but said, nah, no need to be baptized. That category didn't exist. You repented, you believed, and you were baptized. And it was almost instantaneous. So much so that you could use the term synonymously. You're a believer? Oh, you've been baptized. You've been baptized? Oh, you must be a follower of Jesus. That was how it was understood. Paul has already established righteousness comes by faith because Abraham was the example. So he doesn't mean that the baptism itself washes away your sin. The water has no magical properties. No magical properties. What is it that washes away sin? It is the blood of Christ applied by faith on the heart. Not saying that baptism isn't part of the process. It is. We go and we are baptized in submission to Christ, declaring that we follow Jesus Christ, that He is our Lord and Savior. But it is the blood of Christ that does the work. Paul uses baptism here hand in glove for our conversion to Christ. He's talking about everything that happened when you were saved is pictured in baptism. It's represented by your baptism. All of it. Because baptism at its core means death and resurrection. That's what it means. So when you are baptized, you are publicly declaring that you have been, you have died and you have risen with Christ. You are identified with Him. That you are placing your allegiance with Jesus Christ. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. But Paul goes a step further here. He says we are not just identifying with Christ in our baptism, 
but that we have brought, been brought into real union with him. Not just identification, union. And this will be key to understanding. Anybody can say, I identify with something. I follow it. I place my allegiance in it. Paul says, you are actually united with Christ. United with Christ. This is the first blank in your sermon outline if you take notes. Baptism pictures or represents not just our identity, but our complete union with Jesus. Now, some of you may say, well, how are we united with Jesus? Jesus was 2,000 years ago. I just said I want to follow him. No, we are united in so many ways. Christ was born supernaturally on earth. Of course, he existed for eternity, but he was born supernaturally on earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. You were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit when you came to Christ. You were like him in his birth. By baptism, you declare that you were like him in his death, his burial, and resurrection. And then Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me. You are identified and in union with his life. And finally, the purpose of your life is to be united with Christ. Romans 8.29 says that we might be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That is where your life is going as a Christian, that you might look like Jesus. You had no idea you were so united with Christ, but you are. As a Christian, you are completely united with Jesus Christ. And this is going to make all the difference in the world in this passage. Paul says here, do you Romans not understand, you who think you can live however you want, that you have been united to Jesus Christ in his death, and he died to sin? How does that union work? Let's keep reading. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In Greek, words are important. It's a very exact language. It's one of the reasons God chose that it would be written, our, the word of God would be written in Greek. Words mean things, individual words. And here he says the word with. We were buried with him and we were united with him. Not just like him, similar to him in a way that represents him, following after him, but actually with him. Now, this is not a mystical union. We're not talking about some new age idea. This is what scholars call a forensic union, which just means a legal union. From the standpoint of the law, it is true. We are united with Christ, in union with him. It means when you come to know Jesus Christ, God sees you differently. He sees you in Jesus Christ as united with him. He's the lawgiver. He's the court. He's the judge. It is his legal perspective. It is not a physical death that you died with Christ. You did not physically go 2,000 years ago and die. But in God's mind, when you placed faith in Jesus Christ, you were so united with him, it is as if 2,000 years ago you died, were buried, and rose again with Jesus Christ. This couldn't be more important because, and this is the second point in your outline, your union with Christ, as God sees it, means that the benefits won through his death and resurrection are extended to us. How do you claim righteousness? This is a great story about what Jesus did. But in what sense can he possibly give his righteousness to you? That's what he did. He was righteous. You weren't. How can you possibly be righteous? How can I possibly claim to be righteous? 
Because I'm united with Christ by faith. Because you are united with Christ. Not just identifying with him, but in God's mind, when he sees Jesus, he sees you. When he looks at you, he sees his son. And when he sees his son, he sees perfect righteousness. As you are associated with him, that is what he sees. There is no foundational truth more important than this in Christianity. And it is expressed in one verse that if you take notes, you should write down. 2 Corinthians 5.21. We sang it this morning. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Let's change these words and these pronouns and let's put our name in there. I'll put my name in. You put yours. You don't have to read it out loud. Just think it as I do it. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus I might become the righteousness of God. If you will grasp that concept, that will change your life. Your standing before God is not based on your behavior or your performance. Your standing before God is based on Christ's behavior and Christ's performance. You catch that? Huge difference. Because my performance and my behavior is like the stock market or the weather in Greene County. But Christ's performance and Christ's behavior was perfect. And his righteousness is then given to us because we are in him. We are in in union with him. Not just we like him, we like these ideas, we follow him. But we are considered to be one with him. Now you say, I don't even understand how that works. You don't have to. That's God's perspective. And that's all that matters. If God says, by faith, you are one with Jesus Christ, and he sees you that way, then just praise God for it. And that's the verse. And that's why people sing songs about it. Because it's revolutionary and life-changing. God sees you through Christ. It's like a lens put on, a filter put on. Now, what are some of those other benefits? They're written in your notes. All of those benefits that Christ won at the cross are yours because you are in union with him. Look at that list in your notes. It's on the screen as well. These are just some that I came up with in about five minutes of thinking. There's more. I certainly don't know them all. But we're going to read them one by one. And I just want you to think in your mind, those are yours because you are joined to Christ. And they are only yours because you are with him. Righteousness, forgiveness, redemption means to be purchased. Reconciliation, adoption, justification, which means you are declared innocent and righteous. Sanctification, the process whereby he makes you holy glorification, where you're finally going to heaven, where sin will be eradicated forever. Expiation, the removal of sin and guilt. Propitiation, the satisfaction of God's anger against sin. Peace with God, peace with men, freedom from guilt, freedom from condemnation, access to God, confidence before the throne, standing in grace, indwelling by the Holy Spirit, sealing by the Holy Spirit. You belong to him. Fruit of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, a new family, an inheritance in the saints, the assurance of eternal life, a hope of heaven, and a home in glory. All of that because you are united with Jesus Christ. That is what he won at the cross when he defeated sin, when he paid the penalty for you, for me. 
And we obtain that, as David taught us, by faith. How else are you going to obtain that? Are you going to work for that? Good luck. Good luck working for that. Try to impress God. I can't. I cannot. But his son impresses him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he said twice, at the baptism and the transfiguration. God can't get enough of his son, to put it in our terms. He thinks of his son in perfection. And everyone who submits the knee and bows the knee and submits before Jesus Christ in repentance and faith is then united to him and seen by God through the lens of Jesus Christ. If we can grasp that, it will change our lives. It doesn't matter how you feel, my friend. You may struggle with some sin. You may struggle with something in your past. You may feel guilt and shame because you know what you are like on a daily basis. Others know. You know something you've done. You just can't get past that. And we struggle with these things because we're human. And God comes along and says, when I see you, I see my son. And I see his righteousness. I want you, my child, to think the same way. Think of yourself how I see you because of Jesus Christ. You see how that changes your life? You let go of that shame and that guilt. You let go of it because God doesn't see it anymore. What he sees is his son. And you hang on to him for dear life. I like to tell the illustration. Someday you're going to go into the throne room of heaven when you die. And we have no idea what that's like. But I like to put it this way. I'm going to cling to the robes of Jesus when I walk in. What else am I going to cling to? That's our faith in Christ. He's our only hope. Cling to the robes of his perfect son. Now, the first half of this has been all theology, all doctrine. And people will say that's dry and it's not practical. I'm sorry, guys. If what I just said isn't practical, you didn't hear. Because that changes your life. If I know that God sees me as righteous, I can live that way. I can let go of the fear and the guilt and the shame because I know how God sees me. I can get up every day and say, God, thank you for seeing me through your son and I'm righteous. I don't deserve it, but I know you see me that way. If you are hanging on to anything other than Jesus, let it go. Let it go. It's not going to work. Hold on to Jesus. He did it for you. Don't fool yourself or anybody else that there's any other way to please God. There isn't. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. He didn't say that because he was bluffing. Let go and hang on to Jesus. A lot of believers struggle with this point, to believe that God sees them as righteous. My friend, it starts here in the mind to understand truth. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. God sees me as righteous not because I am but because he sees his son. And his son is forever righteous. Now, Paul then turns from establishing that doctrine, that theology, and says, now here's some practical applications for how this works out in your life. He's taken our penalty. Now we're going to talk about how we live. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. See it again? With him. It's all based on your union with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
If you look at the last verse of the previous chapter, there's only two possible masters you can have. Chapter 5, verse 21. Either sin reigns in death or grace reigns in life. That's it. You have two options. Who are you serving today? Sin or grace? Paul tells us in this verse three things that determine who our master is. Let's look at those together. Let's break this verse up. Our old self was crucified with Christ. There it is again. What's your old self? Your old self is who you were before you came to Christ. It's the old person. It's who I was before Jesus. That's my old self. That was crucified with him. Remember, in God's mind, you are in unity with him by faith. You were crucified with him. That old self is crucified. It's dead. It's gone. There's not two natures in me. There's one nature, and that is all things are new. I'm a new creature in Christ. And we'll talk about the fact that we still struggle with sin. We'll get there. But I'm a new creature in Christ, and that old stuff's been crucified. It's gone. Number two, it says the body of sin has been brought to nothing. This brought to nothing is an important point. It does not mean destroyed or eradicated, as in it's not there anymore. It means it's been rendered powerless. Or, another way of saying it, the control of sin has been broken. The tyranny and dominance of sin has ended. This is what it means. And we know that because at the end of the verse he says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you have a new master. It is not sin. Sin is still in your life, and we'll talk about how to deal with it. But it is no longer the master. It is no longer in charge. You are no longer obligated to bow the knee before sin. That's been broken in Jesus Christ. And that's your last fill in the blank. Because our old self, who we were before Jesus, was crucified, the power of sin has been broken forever. Now, you're thinking, but I still sin. And I know you do too, Liebert. Yes, you're right. You're right. That's why 1 John is written. 1 John 2, verse 1. At the end of his life, John the Apostle, having lived many, many years, the only one of the disciples who was not martyred that we know of. And he, they attempted to kill him by boiling him in oil. So that was, you know, no, no major deal. That's all he went through. And he survived. And then he was exiled to the island of Patmos. So he had it pretty easy. <laughs> he wasn't martyred. At the end of his life, he writes, My dear children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I mean, that's the point. We shouldn't live in sin. But then the phrase that is so valuable. But if anybody does sin, does that sound like a wise old elder? By the way, if anybody does sin, because I still do. You can hear him saying that. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Do you get that? When you sin, what happens? It's all lost. It's all for naught. Forget it. You've got to start over again. No. You have an advocate in heaven, a defense attorney, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He stands there and he says, Father, do not see that sin, see me. When you look at my child, look at them through me. And he pleads our case before the Father because he's righteous when we are not. That is a critical truth to understand because you and I will sin. When we sin, don't believe the lie. And we sang about it this morning when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. 
For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. I struggle to sing those words every time we have that song. Because therein lies my hope. (laughs) That's your only hope. It's hard to sing that because it's so meaningful to me. So John says, if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father and He pleads your defense. Jesus says, I'm still righteous, God. Look at me when you see John, Tony, Sue, Linda. Look at me. Some, some believers struggle with this part of it. They believe, I can't change. I'm destined to struggle with sin my whole life. Or this particular sin, I'll never get over it. They just don't believe the power of sin has been broken. My friends, it starts understanding up here in the mind. Paul writes and says, that power has been broken in your life. And I want to give you an illustration of this to help understand it. The credit for this illustration goes back to my old Bible teacher, Moody Bible Institute. I started 25 years ago. I don't know what year it was in college. It was probably my first year. He took us through the book of Romans. African-American teacher, Dr. Sims. Bald as a cue ball. He told me our whole class. He said, you know how this works? He said, Let's assume that we're all working for a cruise line. We're all employees. We all work for this cruise company. We have a captain. Captain's always been there. Captain's in charge. His word is the final authority. No one ever questions it. It's just the way it is. Welcome to life aboard the ship. You do what the captain says. We understand that. We can work on that. We've been doing this for years. One day we're out at sea three or four days from land, and suddenly we get news from the home office. Information is sent to us. And it says, the captain has been found doing something that breaches the contract that he had with that company. It's so breached that he's immediately removed from power, he's stripped of his authority, and he is no more than a passenger on that ship. The first mate has been promoted to his place. Now, he's still on the ship until we get back to shore. It's going to take a few days. He's free to walk about, but he's just a passenger. He's no more on the payroll. He has no more authority. His power has been removed. Okay. I can understand that. But here's the problem. We're walking through the aisle, the, the hallways of the ship. We're alone. And here comes the old captain. The old captain meets us in the hall and with the same barking voice of authority and command tells us to do something. Same intimidating posture. And we yield. We're scared. We're intimidated. It's a habit. Maybe we like what he says. Maybe we don't know any different. Maybe we're alone. We feel isolated. And we cave and we do what the old captain says. Though we know up here we don't have to anymore. But we're used to doing it and it's hard to say no. Is that not like our life? We don't have to yield to sin. We don't have to. We know the power of sin's broken. We know, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Right? That's Scripture. My son Josh told me he memorized that because it helped him. He's a teenage boy. Not that they struggle with any sin of any kind. (laughs) But he said that verse helped him. That there's always a way out. Always a way out. So we know it, but whether it's habit, whether we, maybe we like what the old captain tells us to do. We were good at it. Who knows? It's a job we thought we could do well. And we cave. 
That's what it's like, my friend. We have got to get used to the voice of the new captain and tune out the old captain. We have to know the difference and we have to listen for the new and say no to the old. That's what life is like. Because sin isn't gone. Not until we get to glory. It's still around. It just doesn't have the power it had before. The control is broken. It's stripped of its authority. But you've got to believe that. Because if you walk around thinking, I will always struggle with this sin, then you're already defeated because you believe a lie. Don't believe that lie. The power of sin is broken in your life. There's always a way out. Always a way out. Will you do it perfectly every time? No more than I will. But that's why 1 John 2 was written. Our advocate, our, our self, our defense attorney, the one who intercedes on our behalf when we fail. It's all in God's word, folks. It's all covered. The power to live victoriously, but when you fail, the righteous one who stands before God and pleads your cause. It's all there. So how do we put this into practice? And I'm going to do the same thing I did this morning. I'm going to end with... Paul gives his own recommendations in chapter 8. He says you need to be led by the Spirit of God. You need to walk by the Spirit. He says in Galatians 5, you need to keep in step with the Spirit. That's the NIV translation. You know how you do that? Let me give you one more illustration from my own life this time. Let's go back even further into the dark ages. I'm in high school now. I'm in Indiana. I'm in a class 5A school. It's huge. Never even occurred to me to try out for the football team. I mean, look at me. But I could play the trumpet. I wasn't like Kevin Allen. Couldn't play football, but I could play the trumpet. <laughs> so I did. I was in the marching band. Love being in the marching band. Huge marching band. Does, does GHS have a marching band? And how many are in it? Roughly? Guess? Okay. If you included, if you included all the band, our drum corps, uh, the flag girls, we were hundreds. I don't even know how many. We just covered the stadium. I got to play trumpet. Now, playing trumpet is hard enough. You've got to hold the trumpet with your left hand. You've got to play it with your right hand. We had these little tiny miniature music things that we clipped on, and that's what I had to look at. And I would play that. That's hard by itself. Got to get it right. Got to play it right. But then again, I had to watch the director. Right, Gene? Had to make sure I stayed right in, right in step. So I've got to keep that in my direct in my vision, and I have to listen to the trumpet section around me to make sure I'm in tune with them, in sync with them, and I want to listen to all of the band too to make sure that the music we play sounds good. Well, that in and of itself is hard enough. We played some good music. We did the halftime shows. Okay, but then our director says, right, now you need to march and make beautiful pictures on the field for everybody to see. You've got to form the letters of our, of our high school. You've got to make Whatever, birds, I, I don't know. I never knew what we were making. My job was to do what? My job was to make sure that I stayed with my points of reference at all time. We had to take 15 steps to the left, five steps to the front, and hold that for 42 measures. And then after that, and it had to be on the right beat, we all had to, in sync, immediately turn diagonally and walk this way for 24 steps. They had to be the same steps as everybody else, and we had to stop. I had to turn and face then I had to do an about face and I had to play more. How do you do all that? How does that not look like chaos? You keep in step with your reference points. John was always three steps to my right. Julie was always three steps to my left. And they had better be there or one of us is looking really bad. 
Then I knew in front of me, the drum corps would sometimes be out there, sometimes it'd be the flag girls, sometimes it'd be the flute section. I knew that when I turned, I would see the clarinetists. I just had to keep all of that exactly where it was supposed to be. All the while, I'm making music and not sound like a doofus. It's hard. But you do it by keeping your points of reference at all times. At all times. The human mind is an amazing thing God has created. You can do all that. Any of you who drive a stick shift know it's amazing what you can talk on the phone, move everything. Right? Can I submit to you that the Christian life is no different? You must keep your points of reference or you will make a chaos out of the picture that's being put on that, that football field. Right now, we're playing as a band and we sound fine in here. We do. God likes what's going on in here. You're not sinning right now. Well, hopefully. <laughs> Unless you're thinking really bad things about me that you shouldn't be. So this is nice. This is good music, good symphony. But you're going to leave here in a couple minutes. And you're going to be out there for a week. And what's to say that the formation you make isn't chaos? It will be chaos if you don't keep your points of reference. Can I tell you what those are? You know what they are, but I'm going to say it. One is the Word of God. Are you in God's Word? Or is this all you hear on a weekly basis? Because this is not enough. First of all, I don't know enough. And second of all, I'm just a sinner like you are. But are you daily in God's Word? Because that's John on your right, three steps away. Do you keep that point of reference? What about prayer? Do you have an intimate walk with God? Do you pour out your heart to Him? It doesn't have to be for hours at a time. But do you walk with Him in prayer through your day? Whether you're in high school, no matter where you are, do you talk to your Savior? Because that's Julie over here, three steps to your left. And do you meet with other Christians during the week, in some way, on Facebook, in some way holding each other accountable, telling each other things, encouraging each other, helping that other person walk with God? It doesn't have to be a life group. Life group's a good way to do it. It can be all sorts of ways. Do you do that during the week or is this it? Because that's that visual point of reference ahead of you where the drum corps is, where the flag girls are. You know you're supposed to be 50 feet away. That's your spiritual point of reference. Don't think that we can sound good here on Sunday morning and then drop all our reference points and go out there and live like we want because it'll be chaos. Your life will be chaos. So let me, in closing, summarize. When we repent and place our faith in Christ, God sees us as united with Him. Don't question it. It's how God says it. You are one with Jesus by faith and repentance in Him. If He says it, it's true. In His death, Christ paid the penalty for our sin. That's why you are considered righteous. Because his, what He won, those benefits are given to you. But He didn't just pay the penalty of sin. He broke the power of sin because he rose from the dead. It couldn't hold him. So that power of sin has been broken in your life as well. The penalty's gone and the power's been broken. You can live for God. And as you walk by the Spirit, you hear and obey the voice of the new captain. And you keep your points of reference to help you get there. And when you fail, because you will, you remember the advocate with the Father who still says, God, you see this person as righteous because look at me instead. If those truths don't mean anything to you, I pray for your soul. Because there is no greater truth in all of eternity than what we just talked about this morning. Would you pray with me, please? Father God in heaven, 
We only call You Father because we come through Your Son. We give You the honor and the glory and the praise because this was Your idea. Salvation is what You've done, not what we've done. We just respond. I don't know the hearts of the people here. I pray that those who are listening will deal with You today in whatever way they need to, to let the truths of Scripture sink into their hearts, to be willing to listen to the Spirit of God as you talk and not resist. But we praise you because we are righteous in Christ and Him alone. In His name we pray, amen. We do a simple invitation every Sunday. Scott, our pastor, normally does it. I would just invite